0: Beloved, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, as we continue our evening series in uh, the Gospel of Mark. And uh, this evening, we will look at verses uh, 9 through 11, uh, the baptism of Jesus. Please stand with me as we read God's holy and inerrant word. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased, amen, let us pray, our father we pray that you would instruct us by your spirit uh, from your word, we know this is your word inspired and inerrant and authoritative and sufficient and efficacious to transform the hearts and minds of your elect. And we pray that you would do that even this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. Well, last time we were together in the Gospel of Mark, we were introduced to John the Baptizer. John the Baptizer, an extraordinary figure within the unfolding history of Uh, redemption. We were reading from the book of Exodus, of course, this evening in our evening uh, readings for our evening services, and we see that there's an unfolding and a progression uh, to the history of redemption. And uh, here we have the fullness of time, as it were, that, that Christ came and and was born of a virgin, and he's lived uh, 30 years, and we don't know a whole lot about his life. We know a little bit about his childhood. Of course, we have some narratives around his birth, but at age 30, he begins his public ministry, and so uh, we see that John the Baptist was very much uh, an important figure within that because he was the forerunner of the Messiah, and we learned that last time we were together, and he was not only a prophet and an ascetic, but a man of extraordinary humility, not even counting himself worthy to untie the sandals of the Messiah, pointing people away from himself to the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 3 in verse 30 strikes at the heart, doesn't it, of uh, the pride of, of man when he said, he must increase and I must, what, decrease. It should be the prayer not only of pastors and and uh, missionaries and such, but uh, of every Christian, may he increase in my life and may I decrease. May Christ's model of wanting to become a man of no reputation be also uh, what I long for uh, that Christ would be remembered and not me. Uh, we were introduced to a great man last week, but this, this evening we are introduced to a greater man, the main character of this uh, inspired. Uh, Biography, as it were, of of Christ, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the God man, Yahweh in the flesh. It was according to Mark chapter 1, verse 9, in those days that Christ came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. You see that the first three words in verse 9, in those days. What are these days? These days are referring to. John the Baptist's ministry out in the desert, uh, where he is baptizing those with a baptism of repentance, and we discussed this, the meaning of that baptism of repentance last time we were together. John the Baptist had a hugely influential ministry. It was a a revival of sorts. Uh, Some estimate that 300,000 people came out to be baptized by John the Baptist. This, of course, this narrative is Christ's first public appearance, and as we will explore a little later, this was the inauguration of His public ministry. We are familiar with inaugurations, presidential inaugurations uh, and such, uh, and uh, this one, of course, is not like uh, those with big fanfare and, and, and lots of, of music and uh, uh, poet laureates and 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 all kinds of fanfare. Uh, This is uh, a simple inauguration and yet one that's more profound and glorious than any that have ever been. The text says that Jesus came from Nazareth. This is the town, of course, that he grew up in. And where he learned the carpenter's trade from his father, his legal father, not his biological father, Joseph. Indeed, at the age of 30, Jesus left his hometown Headed south to the Jordan to be baptized by John. Now it's interesting that each of the other three gospels actually have an account of Jesus being baptized. We find these in Matthew chapter three, Luke chapter three, and John one. Mark's description of Jesus' baptism is the shortest of uh, the gospels, and it has the least amount of detail. What is mainly focused upon in Mark is not what happens during the baptism, but what happens immediately afterward. You remember from my introduction that Mark is a fast-moving gospel. This word immediately is is seen over and over again in this fast-moving, action-packed gospel. Verse 10, look there with me. It says, And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. Immediately. Then you go uh, to verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Go to verse 18. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And then verse 20. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat and the hired servants and followed him. And so this happens over and over and over again, and numerous times, no less than 11 times in the very first chapter. Verses 9 through 11 are not only the introduction of the main character of this story and the beginning of this section, of this action-packed gospel, rather, it is the absolute high point of Mark's prologue or introduction to his gospel. You see, one of Mark's reasons, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, for writing the book of Mark is, and to give this account, is to proclaim the truth that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He is the Son of God and the Son of Man. There is no better picture of this reality given in Scripture than after Christ's baptism where the Father, God the Father himself, says to Jesus, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. You are my beloved Son. What better affirmation and confirmation do we have in scripture than this? First, Mark calls Christ the son of God in verse 1. Look there, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the son of God. Then, demonstrating John the Baptist as one as the one rather who will prepare the way for the Lord, Mark makes clear that Jesus is indeed the Lord, the one for whom John is preparing. The way. And here in Mark's account of Christ's baptism, we see the greatest of all confirmations of Christ's divine status that is, God Himself declaring from the heavens, You are my beloved Son. And the Spirit of God descending upon Him, strengthening Him, and sealing Him in order that He would accomplish the mission set apart for Him by His Father. If anybody had any doubts before, here in Mark 1 9 through 11, from the outset of Jesus' ministry, we have the, the divine validation of both John the Baptist's ministry and of Christ's ministry. Through John's baptism, Christ's public ministry has begun, and God the Father is smiling upon his Son and affirming him and validating him and confirming him. So we want to explore the significance of of this baptism this evening by considering three things. First of all, the inauguration of Jesus's public ministry. The inauguration of Jesus's public ministry. Secondly, the identification of Jesus with his people or the association of Jesus with his people. Thirdly, an exhibition of God's Trinitarian love. First of all, the inauguration of Jesus Christ's public ministry. This Baptism, it really marked a starting point. If someone asked you, when did Jesus start his ministry? You could say, well, he was inaugurated at his baptism, the start of his three-year public ministry on earth. There are a couple of things we should keep in mind as we seek to understand this inauguration. First of all, what we must understand is that Christ's first baptism was fulfilled in his last baptism. His first baptism was fulfilled in his last baptism. What does this mean? Well, his public ministry began with a baptism of water, and it ended with a baptism of, his, of God's wrath. It began with a baptism of water, but ended in a baptism of God's wrath. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 12 and verse 50. John chapter 12 and verse 50, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. How great is my distress until it is accomplished. Here our minds, of course, immediately go to Gethsemane. Think of your Savior in the Garden of Gethsemane. He, as the eternal Son of God, in the flesh, fully God, fully man, has never known anything but the love of his Father. And here he is right at the end. His whole ministry has been leading up to this. And here he is in Gethsemane, and, and he knows he must go to the cross. It's why he came to earth. It's... It's why he was born 33 years earlier. And he he he's as one who is fully man, he he is struggling with the idea of of taking upon himself the the, the sins and the, the 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 filth, the guilt of 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 those for whom he would die. And then receiving the wrath of God for those sins. And so Christ, he he cries out to God, he remember. Lord, take this cup from me. He's referring to that cup of God's wrath that the prophet Isaiah speaks of. That Christ knows that he must drink in order to fulfill his mission. To be a righteous substitute for his people. To pay the debt of their sins. Is there any way to do this? Is there another way to accomplish this great salvation? No, there is not. So Christ says, not my will, but what? Yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. Christ's ministry began with a water baptism, but ended with a baptism of his own blood, poured out for guilty sinners like you and me. He, it ended with a, a baptism of, of God's wrath upon him that we would never have to experience such a wrath and judgment. Secondly, at Christ's first baptism, there was an opening or a tearing, in the Greek it's the word schizo, of the skies. There was an opening or a tearing of the skies. Look with me again at verse 9 and 10. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. It was torn open. So at Christ's first baptism, there was an opening or a tearing of the skies. And at his second baptism, namely the baptism of God's wrath, there was another tearing. And you remember that tearing, the tearing of the curtain in the temple. Mark 15, 37 through 39. If you'll look there with me. Mark 15, 37 through 39. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man is the Son of God. And so the inauguration of Christ's ministry commenced with the skies being ripped open and God declaring his paternal love. His ministry ended with his death on the cross and the temple curtain being torn from top to bottom. This literal tearing of the temple curtain symbolized, first of all, that God's justice had been satisfied and a way had been made for God's people to the Lord. God's justice had been satisfied in the substitutionary death of His Son. Access with God had been open to those with faith, thereby making all true believers priests. You understand the the as we read this morning in our call to worship that that you are a, a chosen race a holy what priesthood how is it that we are a holy priesthood uh, well some some people uh, want to uh, just obliterate uh, any uh, position of ministry they say oh we're all pastors we're all priests and uh, I, I call this the uh, the kind of priesthood of all believers run amok you know it's uh, it's the the devastation of of any kind of uh, pastoral leadership, because we're all priests. We don't, we don't need uh, pastors and such, but that's not what this is teaching at all. We have the qualifications for elders and deacons in First Timothy chapter 3. We have the pastoral epistles that teach uh, this uh, important aspect of the life of the church. So it doesn't mean that, but what does it mean? Well, as priests, remember in the Old Testament, you had to go Through a priest, only the priest could walk into certain parts of the temple. Only the high priest could go into the holy of holies and once a year make that atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people. The ordinary people had to go through priests, through a mediation and through the shedding of blood. Well, now in the new covenant, we are in a sense all a holy priesthood because we all can enter the holy place. The curtain has been torn and we can boldly approach the what? The throne of grace. Not because we have earned it, not because we deserve to, not because we have earned some kind of a credential, but because Christ made a way for us. The curtain was torn from top to bottom and now we can enter the presence of God, as it were, humbly and reverently, but boldly and courageously at any time. Hebrews 4, 16, 1 Peter 2 and verse 9. And so the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist was a a holy inauguration uh, to his public ministry that would secure uh, the salvation of his people. The second significant thing we see here is Christ's identification with his people. His association with His people. This is perhaps the main emphasis of Jesus' baptism. That is, the association or identification of Christ with the sinners that He came to save. Even so, some questions might arise in your minds about this baptism. You remember from verse 4 that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Notice in verse 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so one would would ask, if Christ is the sinless one, if he is the righteous one, then why in the world would he receive this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins? This is the same question that emerged in John the Baptist's mind in Matthew's account of this event, When Jesus came for baptism, John tried to prevent him. John said, I need to be baptized by you. You should be baptizing me. I shouldn't be baptizing you. But then here the question is answered when we understand that Christ is identifying with his people in this baptism. Christ was not being baptized because he needed to repent or receive forgiveness. On the contrary, he lived a sinless life. He was perfectly obedient to the law of God, Hebrews four fifteen. No, in being baptized with sinners, Christ was making a declaration that he had come to the earth, as one commentator put it, quote, to stand where only sinners should stand, to receive what they should receive, and in return give them his gift of grace and fellowship with God. That is Sinclair Ferguson. To stand where only sinners should stand, receive what they should receive, and in return give them his gift of grace and fellowship with God. In other words, in his baptism, Christ associated himself among the guilty, not for his own salvation but for ours, not because he was a sinner but because we are sinners. He stood among sinners in the river Jordan and received a baptism of repentance symbolizing His his oneness with those for whom He came to save, His oneness with those that the Father gave to Him, even before the foundation of the world, those whom He would purchase with His own blood on Calvary in three years' time. Christ, dear one, was baptized to fulfill all righteousness, to fulfill His mission, of obeying God's law and satisfying God's justice on the cross. It really dovetails beautifully with our understanding of Romans chapter 9, doesn't it? Because in Romans chapter 9, we are reminded that this purpose, this plan, was established even before the foundation of the world. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit our blessed triune God, covenanting to save a people for his own glory, a people who would eventually fall into sin and need eternal life, all to provide Christ with a bride forever and ever. So our third point, finally, is that Christ's baptism is an exhibition of God's Trinitarian love. Here in these verses, we are introduced to one of the most glorious moments of all time. Here we get a a glimpse of the infinite love and unity that exists within the Holy Trinity. To understand the world correctly, we must believe that God is the ultimate foundation of love and the ultimate foundation of unity. I remember a A class on the Trinity that I took uh, in uh, in seminary, and uh, I won't even tell you who the professor is, but I remember I was taking an exam with another uh, student, and we were uh, being uh, tested, examined with an oral examination, and so uh, we were sitting there, and, and as the examination was going on, our professor fell asleep while he was asking a question. And I looked at my fellow student. I'm like, what should we do? Then? I like, not no." And uh, finally he sort of you know, came back and, uh, and he was with us again. Uh, but that class uh, was one of the most wonderful classes I had in seminary and always has had a big effect on me because we worship a Trinitarian God. God is Trinity. When you think of the one God, you think of the three persons. When you think of the three persons, you think of Uh, the one God, and there is between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit a perfect, mutual love, the Father loving the Son. We hear it at the baptism, this is my beloved Son, the Son loving the Father. We hear it all over the Gospels, the the Son wanting to please his Father, to do his Father's will, The, the Spirit loving the Father and the Son carrying out the purpose of God in the hearts of sinners. This is that love, and there's also a unity, a unity of purpose. There is no conflicting wills within the Trinity. Only one will for the glory of God and the salvation of his people. Indeed, the world could not even really exist unless there was some unity and and some love. And we know it's lacking, uh, of course, in the world uh, today because of sin, but If we think about human flourishing on any level, it must have both unity of spirit and purpose and also love for one another. And this is really coming all the way back to God himself, who is in himself perfect unity between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and perfect love, mutual love. And and we cannot have this apart from God and a right understanding of him. And so here at the baptism of Christ, we see God's unity and mission and His love within the Godhead. God's unity and mission. I mentioned it before, and we looked at it this morning from Ephesians chapter 1. The Father purposing our redemption. The Son accomplishing our redemption. And the Spirit applying this redemption to our hearts. This is God's unity and mission. God's intratrinitarian tr- love And God's love for sinners, we see it here at the baptism of Christ. Again, all members of the Holy Trinity are shown here at His baptism. The Father speaking from heaven, the Spirit descending like a dove. They are all present to give affirmation to the plan of redemption that was decreed or purposed before time and is now being accomplished through Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God descends upon Christ, why? To strengthen Him and anoint Him for the mission of saving His people. And the Father declares proudly from heaven with all the abounding joy and delight that exists in a Father, this is my Son, this is my Son. And with Him I am well pleased. My precious Son, my only Son, my beloved Son, There is no one in this vast universe in which I am more pleased than you, my son. The mission is before you. Now go and do it. Accomplish it for those whom I love with an everlasting love. And this reminds us, doesn't it, that God did not, I should say, Christ was not sent into the world to to die for a hypothetical people. He was not sent into the world and, and thinking, well, I, I wonder if there will be any who will even believe in me. Will this all be for naught? Will I go through all of this and die on the cross and nobody believe? No, Christ would pray things like this. Father, I have come for those whom you have given me. And so Christ came to accomplish a mission that was purposed before the foundation of the world. The Father sends, the Son works and accomplishes and the spirit applies beloved if god is for us who can be against us if god is for us who can be against us who shall separate us from the love of god when god has purposed our redemption when he's accomplished our redemption in full and has applied that redemption by his spirit you say oh pastor i i struggle I don't always feel so close to God. I don't always feel so zealous to read my Bible. I I miss opportunities to share the gospel. I I don't feel like a strong Christian at times. I feel like things ebb and flow, and, and all of this sounds so wonderful. Is God's grace really this good? Does he really love me this much? The answer is yes. He does. And his love never changes for you. You could have 50 straight days of devotions, Or 50 days without devotions. And God loves you exactly the same in His Son. His love for you doesn't ebb and flow based upon the the measure of your obedience. Now, can you please God? Yes. Can you displease God? Yes. But His love for you does not change. Think of our own experience as parents, those of you who are parents. You may be displeased at times with your children. At other times, you are very pleased with them, but your love for them in our limited way and, and even in all of our human weakness, we understand our love for them really not shifting. You say, well, I don't know, Pastor, sometimes my love seems to shift a bit on those really bad days. But that was only a reflection of our weakness, if that is true. With God, it is never true. By grace through faith, united to Christ, God's love does not ebb and flow. It is always the same. We are accepted into the beloved, and we seek to honor and to please him, and to, to read our Bibles, and to share the gospel, and to live an upright and godly life in this present evil age with thankful hearts out of a place of being loved so perfectly by God in Christ, by his Spirit, who empowers us for Christian living and for mortifying the sins of the flesh and for honoring and glorifying him. This is the preciousness of the gospel, dear ones. His grace is greater than you can ever imagine. And it's when we begin to define God's grace based upon our daily performance before him that we, again, do it a disservice. And in no way... Ever uh, does God's grace give us a license to sin and to live as we would live as unbelievers. Oh no, quite the contrary. This is where our doctrine of sanctification comes in because when we are united to Christ, a process starts and the Lord works and he changes us and he transforms us into the image of Christ and he gives us grateful hearts and we never do this perfectly, but progressively we grow and we mature. Sometimes we feel like we're going backwards. You ever feel like that? Pastor, I don't feel like I'm progressing right now. I feel like I'm going a bit backwards. That's the experience of every Christian. Every Christian. So if you feel alone in that, if you feel like the devil is telling you you're the only Christian who's going backwards at times, well, that's a lie. God's grace is sufficient for you. His power is made perfect in weakness. He it's a God who is so full of love and grace for his people. And as we read this morning, he lavishes it upon us. If God is for us, who can be against us? Christ's baptism reinforces this wonderful truth. If God is for us, who can be against us? God sent his son into the world. And here at the inauguration of his ministry, we are reminded that he is for us. John chapter 17 is Christ's high priestly prayer. And in this prayer, John 17, uh, verses 25 and 26, we read this. "O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me, these disciples. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Think about that for a minute. What Christ is saying here I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you, with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This love, this being expressed by the Father from heaven for his only Son, this inner Trinitarian love, we, by His grace, can know and experience and have that love. The love of God. It's a love with which we love God and which we love our neighbor with. Christ's prayer is that through His life, death, and resurrection, He will be able to make God known to us. And the love with which the Father has for His Son may be in us. And so that Christ Himself may dwell in us the hope of glory. What can be more comforting, more reassuring, more faith-building than this that Christ died for us so that we might be loved with the same love that the Father with which the Father loves his son. So that the Father, dare we even say it, looks down upon us and says, these are my beloved Children, how I delight in them, how I love them, how I sing over them. Christ's baptism is the inauguration of His divinely ordained mission from His Father. It's also Christ's identification or association with sinners as the one who will take their place of judgment at the cross. And lastly, it is a divine exhibition of God's Trinitarian love God is love, 1 John 4, 8, and so is the true source of love which abounds to those who exercise their faith in Christ, the Son of God. And so how do we go away from this? Well, there are two things I believe we are exhorted to believe here, and a couple things that we should do in response by His grace. First thing we ought to take away from this in our understanding is that Christ's first baptism confirms the efficacy of his second baptism. Christ's first baptism confirms the efficacy of his second baptism. This first baptism, uh, the affirmation of the Father, uh, the descent of the Spirit. You see, this uh, is an inauguration to a ministry that led to his crucifixion and death, and he did this because of his unsurpassing love for us, and he accomplished this redemption on the cursed tree. Listen to these words of John Owen from his classic work, Communion with God. Quote, "...all that he parted with, all that he did, all that he suffered, all that he doth as mediator, He parted with, did, suffered, and doth on the account of his love to and esteem of believers. He parted with the greatest glory. He underwent the greatest misery. He doth the greatest works that ever were because he loves his spouse. He so loves his saints as that, having from eternity undertaken to bring them to God, he rejoices his soul in the thoughts of it and pursues his design through heaven and hell, life and death, by suffering and doing, in mercy and with power, and ceaseth not until he bring it to perfection. End quote. This is what Christ did for you. This is what Christ did for all of his people. The second thing we ought to take away from this is that God's love for us is profoundly Trinitarian. That is, this picture is painted all over Scripture and not least in the baptism of Jesus. Each person of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, are all intimately involved in this great work of redemption for us. Remember this. Remember this. How should we respond? Well, one way we can respond to this, of course, is to believe this gospel, to believe that Christ is, identified with sinners, that He went to the cross, that He paid the debt of our sin, that He died and rose again from the dead for our salvation. Of course, this is the number one application. Believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Abide in Christ for grace and salvation. But the second thing is to remember our own baptisms. We spoke last time about how John's baptism is different than Christian baptism, which Christ initiated in Matthew 28 before His ascension. But here at the baptism of Christ, we are reminded of our own baptisms, our baptisms into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and what these baptiz- this baptism symbolizes and marks us out for. It symbolizes the washing away of our sins, the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. And also, it marks us out as set apart from this world as set apart unto Christ to live a life that's unmistakably led by His Word and His Spirit. So let us remember our baptisms and may spirit spur us on to faith in Christ and love and good deeds. And the second thing I want to mention finally is that this love of God in Christ is a love that we receive. It's a love that we abide in. It's a love, a costly love that we receive because Christ paid for our redemption and it's through him that we are loved by God so wonderfully. And it's this love that we live in that then we can show to others. I believe there are so many that have a hard time loving people, particularly loving enemies and those who would seek to do us harm because we ourselves have not really reflected upon this love enough. Sometimes you hear people say things like this, oh, that church, that, that pastor, he's always talking about the love of God. Uh, there are those who seem to want to always hear sermons on God's wrath and judgment. I remember uh, there were... Um, uh, there was a, a man, this is, this is a long time ago, 20 years ago, I always kind of hesitate to say things like this because people start thinking, I wonder where that was and who it was and so forth. Um, long, long time ago. Uh, and um, I remember I would preach and I would say all kinds of things about the cross and about God's love and his grace. And, and then I would kind of shift and talk about his judgment and eternal hell. And every time I talked about judgment and hell, he'd say, amen, amen. In the back of the church, and, and there weren't there weren't any loud ameners in our church either. It was just so obnoxious, you know. Every time I said hell or judgment, amen. And uh, finally, I had to I had to talk to him. Uh, I say maybe maybe you could say amen when I talk about the grace of God once in a while too. Uh, oh, okay, Pastor. Yeah, I could think about doing that. Um, he only visited from time to time, so it wasn't uh, always uh, a distraction, but. Sometimes people have this idea that uh, we shouldn't talk too much about the love of God or we'll start taking it for granted. You ever hear that? I've heard it said, I don't know how many times, you know, in my last church, I just heard about grace all the time. I need some, I need a little bit of legalism to ba- balance it out. <laughs> Excuse me? <laughs> you can never stop talking about the love of God enough. can never stop talking about the love of God for sinners enough. It's by grace that we are saved. Saved from what? Saved from God's wrath. Saved from the clutches of Satan. Saved from an everlasting damnation in hell. It's because of God's love. And when we know that love, then we are set free to live a Christian life free from being judgmental, free from being hypercritical of ourselves or of others. We're able to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. It's love, you see. And that's what always comes back to me in in times of counseling, uh, times of uh, meeting with couples uh, who perhaps are having some issues, uh, issues in, in my own life when I'm struggling with someone, is love there. Am I abiding in Christ's love? Am I remembering the love that was shown to me and the way that I am looking at situations and treating others? This this is glorious. And so let us remember in this baptism this this Trinitarian love of God, the Father loving the Son, the Son loving the Father, the Father and the Son loving the Spirit, the Spirit loving the Father and the Son. And that is the very love that is given to us in the gospel. Christ says it in in his high priestly prayer. Father, I want to make your name known to them that they would know the love that you have for me. Experience that love, and then we can show that love to others. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the baptism of Jesus, which shows us the greatness of your redemptive plan and the beauty of your saving love. Our Father, we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we would abide in Christ for the forgiveness of sins and for mercy and everlasting life. That we would abide in your love, a love inexpressible and full of glory. Oh Lord, we thank you that you lavish your grace upon us in your Son. And as we come to your table this evening, we pray that you would feed us and nourish us upon Christ, who is our life, and by whose love, We live, our Father, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name.